three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 388. Welcome in. Uh, I'm going to be honest today. I'm not going to yell and scream today. It is 1244 in the morning. I apologize to my neighbors, although I think I'm talking in a very monotone, uh, casual voice that is not too loud. I'm projecting like crazy. Got fans going on the porch. I think that's going to drown out a lot of the sound leaving the apartment. I'm wearing a very casual shirt. Um, I want to break down NFL week three so far. Monday Night Football is tomorrow, obviously. And and I got to be honest, first of all, talking in this like volume is way easier and, and more pleasurable. So I think actually moving forward, I'm going to do this. Every, I, I don't know. Like, feel free to write in because I, I feel more comfortable not yelling and projecting. I don't know. Um, I don't want to waste any time, though. Let's talk about uh, the first big game. Last night for you guys, it is a couple hours ago for me. On Sunday night football, week three of the NFL season, the Green Bay Packers beat the San Francisco 49ers 30-28. to And uh, it was a crazy game with a crazy ending. And the game really came down to Packers ball, 37 seconds left, ball on their own 25-yard line, zero timeouts, and Aaron Rodgers had to make something happen. And he did. Aaron Rodgers made magic happen. Two big throws, bang, bang, spike the ball. Mason Crosby hits a 51-yard field goal, game winner, as time expires. Incredible. Like, really a very, very amazing finish. And I just want to... I don't know. I guess I kind of understand why people often, when I make a prediction and I'm wrong, they feel a need to like jab at me and say, oh, remember when you were wrong? I get it now. Because I remember people two weeks ago saying, you know, panicking and saying, Aaron didn't seem invested in this year. And it's like people forgot he won the MVP last year and suddenly they lose one game to New Orleans week one and they're terrible and can't win anything this year because of the offseason drama. Well, that win was all Aaron. And so (laughs) it's funny how Quickly, the narrative, like, can Aaron do it this year is going to evaporate. And people just need something for their news cycle. So they say whatever they feel like they can get away with at the time. Um, I think you have to really respect Aaron for what he did during that final drive. And, and think about what was at stake here, because the Packers were a couple plays away from being one and two this year. A couple things go the other way. And think of one win and two losses rather than two wins and one loss after the massive offseason they had last year. It's just a really crazy difference. The things people are going to say about Aaron Rodgers instead of, you know, if they're one and two versus two and one, it's just a massive difference. And I don't know, man, Aaron deservedly so was the hero on Sunday Night Football. Green Bay is two and one. And it's just funny how outcomes can change people's emotion. I just find that really fascinating. But Aaron deserves all the praise and I don't know. It's just, I think that's the way you follow up a crazy offseason, all the criticism he got that game on Sunday Night Football. That is how you say, look, I'm Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Shut up. Uh, now, you know who I felt bad for, though, after watching that game? How does Jordan Love feel? The Packers backup quarterback, former first round pick last year. That is a tough act to follow. Like, how is anybody supposed to replace Aaron Rodgers. It's impossible. I I just don't know. Like, what do you do? (laughs) How do you become, like, how do you replace Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Drew Brees? It's not a feasible task. And I almost feel bad about what's going to be expected of Jordan Love because whenever that day comes, sooner or later, like, I just do not know how Jordan Love could possibly replace what Aaron Rodgers brings to the Packers. I just, it's like, man, the insane reality of, like, what you have to live up to because Aaron had to live up to Brett Favre. 
I think Aaron is better than Brett Favre. He's less crazy, and, and I mean that in a good way. He know he reads defenses more effectively. He's not as bullish and you know way more calculated. I would take Aaron over Brett Favre. But how in the world do you follow up Aaron Rodgers, who I think is the – they went from Brett Favre, one of the more talented throwers of the football ever, to literally the most talented thrower of the football ever. I, I, Jordan Levy's very talented. I don't think he's – I just – again, I, I can't say enough. I feel bad for the weight that Jordan Love is going to have to feel the day he's expected to replace Aaron Rodgers, and maybe they just trade him away. I, at this point, it looks like Aaron could go for a couple more years, and you're like, does Green Bay just get rid of Jordan Love? I, I, and maybe they want to – I know it's crazy to have this conversation you know, three weeks into the NFL season, but either they trade Jordan Love away or they say we're going all in on having a cheap quarterback who's good enough and then building a great team around him because Aaron, the one criticism you can say about Aaron is he's very expensive and maybe they want a quarterback on a rookie contract who's really cheap and they can build a great team with free agents and all kinds of stuff. But I don't know, man. I don't see Aaron Rodgers going anywhere anytime soon. And it's like, I just I don't know what's going to happen. And it's incredible to think about. Now, uh, normally I do not talk about penalties. I hate complaining. Uh, I lost a big game one time. We were on not top 10, uh, because of a weird call. I'll, I'll leave it there. You can look up the, look up Skyview river, um, blocked kick. Someone find that on YouTube. It's incredible what happened. It's just really weird. And, um, at the time before we got more information, we felt like we got screwed over by the refs. And my coach told us after that game that if we let a game be decided by the refs, then we didn't do enough to win anyway. And the theory is that if you make enough plays, you shouldn't be vulnerable that a call or two can screw up a game, right? You, you should not be vulnerable to a bad call. If you score nine, ten, eight touchdowns, then bad calls don't matter. And also, one of, you know, one of my best friends, I, I lived with my best friend for a couple of years after high school, and his dad's a referee. And I, I'm very aware that refs are human, and they have a hard job. I hate calling out refs. I, I try to never do it. Often people are like, why didn't you talk about this call or that call? And I just, for the most part, ignore that kind of stuff going on. And I will say, I've, I've watched a lot of really, really bad calls this year. It's been boiling up and building and building. And then, and also, thankfully, the refs did not decide this Packers 49ers game. Like, thankfully, it wasn't the deciding factor in this football game. But, oh, my goodness. It's, it's really... It's, it's kind of reached the tipping point, and <laughs> the refs were awful, like truly horrible in this Packers 49ers game. I can forgive a call or two. I can overlook a bad call here and there. They're human. They make mistakes. I certainly make mistakes all the time. But the 49ers-Packers game was not a missed call or two. It was no intentional grounding before halftime. That cost Green Bay seven points. It was multiple really bad pass interference calls. It was a ball that hit the ground that got ruled a catch. And I'm like, how do you watch that on replay and still call it a catch? It's unbelievable. That was not a catch. Like the guy, it was the 49ers, I believe, actually, caught the ball, used the ground to catch the football. It hit the ground in the process of catching the ball. And, and I just, I'm like, I don't, I, it's unfathomable to me that you look at that and go, that's a catch. R call stands. It should have been overturned. It drove me nuts. And then worst of all, though, was the clear an obvious dirty hit on Devontae Adams. And it was completely ignored. And I'm sitting at home going like, really? Like, are you serious? Not to mention, it's, it's like, you know, the NFL wants to put an emphasis on safety. I don't know why then you can possibly ignore that call. Like, everyone watched it on TV. And really what the NFL needs is to have an eye in the sky 
that can overrule any call. No bureaucracy, no stupid procedures. You just need to get it right. And the XFL had a wonderful thing that the brief league we got the XFL last year had an eye in the sky, which was a, a camera in New York, a, an operator with every camera angle available to them. And they had the freedom to correct any bad call. And it worked beautifully. And the NFL needs that. Not everything is correctable. You can't get everything right. Certain things are close. Like some are just too hard to tell. I understand that there's all gray areas everywhere. But the blatant and obvious calls, they need to be gotten right. You should never miss a ball that hits the ground and call that a catch. You should never miss a clear, obvious, dirty hit on Devontae Adams and not call a penalty. I don't care if it didn't happen on the field. The New York should see that go, oh, the replay, that's a penalty. Hey, just so you know, we want the refs to throw a late flag after the play because that's a penalty. I, I don't care. Screw the rules. When it's clear on replay that the wrong call was made, it needs to be fixed. You should never miss a clear and blatant call. And I don't care about the system. I don't care how it screws up challenges. I understand that. But if I'm sitting at home and I can see the mistake clearly and obviously that it needs to be fixed, I should not be a better ref from my apartment than the dudes who are on the field. And when it reaches that point, I'm like, okay, well, we have to find a new solution because the system in place right now is too inflexible and does not allow for corrections when things are clearly and obviously wrong. We all saw that hit. Every sing- Millions of people watching on TV said that's a penalty. But the ref missed it in the moment, and the system in place does not allow for anyone to say on replay, based on replay, that's a penalty. we got to call that. It should have been. And generally, I support refs. But I also think that we acknowledge referees are human, and they need an eye in the sky to help them with the obvious calls that they miss. We need some kind of system in place in the NFL where when a call that's terrible is made, it would have solved the Rams-Saints game a couple years ago. That should have been pass interference. It wasn't called on the field, and there was no system in place that said, hey, when you make a terrible call, we're going to overrule it from the top. Why is that they're not some presidential veto or something or an executive order to say, hey, just so you know, we saw that. We're in New York. We're watching that live. That's a penalty. should have been called. It is a penalty now. Or or a missed call or a drop or whatever. I just... The NFL needs to be a little more flexible with that kind of system. Screw the rules and bureaucracy. Um, they cannot miss obvious calls. And I just, I, I feel like watching that game, it was never more apparent that they need some kind of system in place, an eye in the sky that can overrule whatever they want. Now, let's talk about uh, the 49ers quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo. There's some good, there's some bad. And the good was that technically Jimmy Garoppolo led the go ahead touchdown in a two minute drill. And so in theory, someone could argue that Jimmy G did enough to put his team in a position to win. I've heard that often said exactly that way about the Chiefs and 49ers Super Bowl a couple of years ago. It's a couple of years ago, two years ago. I can't even remember. I watched so much football now, I can't even remember. Was that two years ago, two, three years ago? I don't remember. Anyway, we have to acknowledge, first of all, that Jimmy Garoppolo had help on a third and 10. He made a good throw to George Kittle, but George Kittle made an amazing play after the catch got 39 yards Certainly that has to be talked about. And then also later on another third down, same drive, third and 10, two third and 10 conversions on this drive, third and 10, Jimmy G throws a weak, frankly, inaccurate pass to Debo Samuel. And Debo Samuel makes like the catch of the game, ripping the ball away from a defender, a ball that should not have been complete. He made it a completion with a great catch, stole the ball away from a defender and frankly, helping Jimmy Garoppolo look good. So even on that game winning drive, you have to acknowledge that Jimmy G got help. Now, I do have to acknowledge that drive, though, because some people will say, well, Jimmy G did enough to win. And fair enough. Technically, I guess that's true. And 
you could also argue the defense let him down. And I, I believe me, I get it. The 49ers defense is specifically not their defense. Let me, let me clarify. The 49ers secondary is terrifying and not in a good way. They're terrifyingly bad. I have no idea how the 49ers are going to stop Matthew Stafford, the Rams, Cooper Cup, Deshaun Jackson running right by everybody. How are they going to stop Arizona with Kyler Murray, all their offensive weapons? I don't know what the 49ers plan for their secondary is. I mean, frankly, the 49ers might lose to Cincinnati because of Jamar Chase alone making great catches down the sideline and they have no way to stop him. I I just, I, I really have deep concerns about the 49ers secondary. But all that aside, even though technically you can argue Jimmy G did enough to beat the Packers on Sunday Night Football, he also left a lot to be desired in this game. He had an interception, should have had two, one got dropped. Now, the one interception he did throw was a bad decision deep down the middle into double coverage. You're like, do you not see the safety? I don't know what you're doing there. Uh, Not a great decision. Then later, five minutes left in the fourth quarter, Jimmy Garoppolo fumbled, and that could have cost them the game. I'll get to that in a moment. But I want to first say, I watched the LA Rams get tired of Jared Goff. And they made a move. They upgraded at quarterback. They are very, very happy in LA. They do not miss Jared Goff at all. And the 49ers now, and we already knew this, but they're clearly and obviously tired of Jimmy Garoppolo, and he's playing himself out of a job. The 49ers want to win big games against Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Games like Sunday Night Football against Green Bay at home, they want to beat Aaron Rodgers. They want to win that game, and they're tired of losing to the other team because the other team has a more dynamic or better quarterback. They're like, we, we are sick of Jimmy Garoppolo being the weakness of this football team. So they made a move. They got Trey Lance. And in that Packers 49ers game, like it, the, the Trey Lance draft pick was justified. Jimmy Garoppolo was playing himself out of a job. If you do not perform at a high level, you will be replaced. And we're getting to that point with Jimmy G. And it's crazy, like the parallels between Jared Goff and Jimmy Garoppolo. They both were elevated by a coach and a good football team. Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan making their quarterback look good. And Both Jared Goff and Jimmy G lost a Super Bowl. And then also the thing they will soon have in common is soon they will have both been fully replaced and lose their starting jobs. Jared Goff already lost his. The time is coming for Jimmy G to lose his job. Now, Jimmy Garoppolo is not terrible. I want to be very clear. He's not useless. He's not awful. He's won a lot of games. But also Jimmy Garoppolo has hit his ceiling. And he leaves way too many things to be desired. You watch him play and you're like, mistake, 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 bad play, not physically dominant, bad, bad, bad. Like when you watch him and you, you grade, you, you know, it's a, a plus, a neutral, or a minus. There's too many minuses when you grade the way Jimmy Garoppolo plays. And I, I mean, I, I'm just losing patience. I'm so ready for the Trey Lance era to begin in San Francisco. Like I'm so excited for that day when it comes. And I know he's not quite ready. It seems like... Obviously, he's not because they would play him if he was. And also, the touchdown that Trey Lance had, third and goal, two seconds left before halftime, like an incredible play, ball in the one-yard line. Trey Lance comes in at quarterback. George Kittle blocks down. Trent Williams, a left tackle, pulls left. Alex Mack makes a great block from center. Trey Lance gets the ball, runs left to the outside, scores a touchdown on the goal line. It was beautiful. I loved it. And I want more of that. I'm like, every time I watch Jimmy Garoppolo, I'm like, I'm way too aware of his shortcomings. And it's really, really getting grating and hard to watch. 
Now, look, I will say, though, the 49ers defense, specifically their secondary, they have problems. Uh, and, and, and all the problems aside, you still, despite like, hey, they could not stop Devontae Adams' back shoulder throws at all. Like, it was really, really weird and frankly disturbing. I mean, on the same drive, we saw back shoulder fade, back shoulder fade. It was like a replay. You're like, is that a replay? No, that's the same play again. Like, two plays later. Like, how was that even... How do they not know that's coming? They just had no defense down the sideline. The 49ers secondary did. And in spite of their problems, you also have to acknowledge that the 49ers defense did stop Green Bay in two key moments. There was a fourth and one on the three-yard line. And the 49ers, they stopped Green Bay. That's basically a goal line stand. Well done. Great job, boys. That's a, you saved not only a field goal, but a touchdown. And then later at the end of the fourth quarter, Never forget what happened on the Packers' second in the last drive. Like, anybody who argues that Jimmy Garoppolo was let down by their defense, think about this for a moment. Jimmy Garoppolo fumbles with five minutes left in the fourth quarter. Down, by the way. You're down 21 to 24. And it gave the Packers the ball with great field position. Infield goal range to start the drive. And the 49ers' defense, in this key moment, end of the fourth quarter, they held the Packers to a field goal. A touchdown would have made it a two-score game, which would have again given the 49ers no opportunity to win that football game. So you can blame the defense all you want, and you can defend Jimmy Garoppolo if you want, but you do that at your own cost. Because remember, if Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't fumble with five minutes left, we never even need the game-winning drive that Jimmy Garoppolo put together. And you wouldn't have needed the 49ers defense to hold the Packers to only a field goal with like three minutes left in the fourth quarter to make sure it's not a two-score game. So... All you people that want to defend Jimmy Garoppolo, remember you do it at your own cost. All right. Um, the Cleveland Browns just beat the Chicago Bears 26-6. to And um, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, it was Justin Fields' first NFL start. It was, I don't know. We'll, we'll, get to that. we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I want to talk about Cleveland. They won. We should acknowledge what they did first. Number one. Odell Beckham Jr. played in his first game in the NFL since week seven last year, 2020. Uh, He's coming back from an ACL tear. It was kind of weird. Like, people were waiting and waiting, and Jimmy Garoppolo didn't play week one, didn't play week two, and people were starting to get really excited about the narrative. Like, oh, Odell Beckham Jr. is a bust. He's a failure. He's never going to play again. He's awful. Quit your yapping. You're all wrong. He looked great. Odell Beckham Jr. had five catches for 77 yards. A couple really, really... Good catches, too. Had a big back shoulder fade down the right sideline. I put it on my Twitter. I put it on my Instagram story. It was always annoying when people said that Odell Beckham Jr. somehow hurt the Cleveland Browns or that they were better without him. That narrative is nonsense. It's crazy to me. Football is not baseball. Like, you can look at all the numbers of, oh, Baker's this without OBJ. and Numbers lie all the time. And I, I really hate when people try to equate baseball and football. And baseball... You can look at percentages. The sample size is large enough to go, yeah, clearly the numbers don't lie there. But in football, the sample size is so small. You get 16, 17 games now for a regular season. You, you can't rely on only the numbers to tell you a story in the NFL. You can try, and people do all the time. But it, it, to my, in my opinion, that's just not a good way to analyze football. Now, uh, so again, Baker... OBJ, they looked fantastic against Chicago. Their chemistry was really good. And I, I think that, let's put that narrative aside, OBJ makes the Browns a much better football team. And by the way, Jarvis Landry didn't play. 
the Browns weren't even at full strength. Their left tackle, Jedrick Wills, was injured, didn't play a lot of the game. Like you, <laughs> The Browns are a Super Bowl-caliber football team. I, I thought they actually didn't even play very well. They had a couple – they were stopped on fourth down a couple times. I mean, the Bears' defense is better than they showed here. They just got no support from their offense. And so the Browns are a very, very good football team capable of winning a Super Bowl. Now, <sighs> Baker Mayfield, the Browns quarterback, is – I'm going to say something in a moment. He's not there yet. Baker Mayfield is still a work in progress. He's getting better every time I watch him. But do you know what Baker's developing into? Baker looks like a young Drew Brees. The accuracy, the back shoulder fades, like multiple back shoulder throws down the sideline in this game. We were like, oh, you know, Rashad Higgins and OBJ and like just throw after Donovan Peoples-Jones, like throw after throw after. You're like, that's a great ball. That's a great ball. That's a great, oh my gosh, he's really accurate. He missed a couple too. And that's the difference between Drew Brees and Baker. Baker's not there yet. But then you watch Baker, the way he moves around and slides in the pocket. I mean, that, that's textbook Drew Brees right there. It's like he's been watching Drew Brees' film and studying it. And then the patience that Baker's developing more and more, watching him check down is really, really like, I, I know people get excited when they see a 75-yard touchdown. I jump out of my seat with excitement when I watch Baker go, not open vertical, not open vertical, and then checks it down to the running back without trying to run around or extend a play. He's patient finds the right man. Like that is exactly what you need to see Baker Mayfield do. And that's the play that Baker makes the, Oh, OBJ's double covered vertical. The crossers closed. Let's find my check down. I just go, yes, that is the development we want to see from Baker Mayfield. And, and it might be wishful thinking. I like Baker. I'm rooting for Baker. So you can accuse me of saying it's wishful thinking or I'm a fanboy, whatever you want. But every time I watch Baker Mayfield, he gets a little bit better. And you know, People often will criticize Baker saying he has a ton of help. He has a good coach. He's got Kevin Stefanski. He's got great teammates, a good defense. Well, isn't that actually exactly what Drew Brees was for most of his career? Most of the time, Drew Brees had a really good defense. He had a great coach, always Sean Payton. He had a ton of weapons on offense. He had a great offensive line. Like the Saints were nothing before they got their coach and quarterback, before they got Sean Payton and Drew Brees. Well, now Cleveland has Kevin Stefanski and Baker Mayfield. I see a lot of parallels between the way that the New Orleans Saints were built a long time ago in 2006 and the way that the Browns are built now. And I go, hey, I I really think that people got to open their mind a little bit with Baker Mayfield. He looks like a young Drew Brees. He's not there yet. To compare him to a Hall of Fame quarterback, I get it that it's absurd. I understand that. But you have to see the way Baker's developing. The skill set is growing. The way he is modeling his game appears to be modeling it after Drew Brees. I mean, I see so many parallels in the way they play. And Baker, every time I watch him, gets better and better and better. Now, uh, the Browns defense had a big day. Obviously, Miles Garrett had four and a half sacks, a massive game. Uh, it was kind of like Miles Garrett against Chicago was kind of like when I, when I played in high school. I had a guy on my team, Samson Ibukam. He plays defensive end for the San Francisco 49ers right now. And I watched Samson Ibukam play running back. A defensive end who went to Eastern Washington now plays in the NFL as a starter. He was 6'5", like just yoked. Looked like a, a man amongst boys. And he, I watched South Salem against David Douglas. People were falling off of Samson as he's carrying like four people into the end zone. That's what watching Miles Garrett looked like against Chicago. A man amongst boys. You're like, this guy? Does not belong with the others. He is a head and shoulders level above everybody else. Miles Garrett, unbelievable performance against Chicago. 
By the way, though, I, the person I want to give a shout out to, Miles Garrett, amazing. But I want to give a shout out to Jeremiah Owusu uh, Karamoa. Jeremiah Owusu Karamoa. Get to know the name. I hope I said it right. I, I'm like 95% sure I nailed it. But I, hey, I, if I'm wrong, feel free to criticize me. But I acknowledge it now. I got it out of the way. Uh, Jeremiah Owusu Karamoa went to Notre Dame. Should have been a first round pick. But he fell to the second round because of a heart issue that got discovered late in the draft process. And people were like, oh, we're hesitant. We're not sure. Basically, the Browns got a steal. They got a first round pick in the second round when they drafted him. And against Chicago, Jeremiah Owusu-Karamoa had a couple of key tackles. He had a couple passes defended that he knocked away. Like you're, He played coverage. He made great tackles. He rallied to the ball. He was flying all over the place. And I had to mention the guy because he's a cool story. He's a guy who fell in the draft who probably should have been a first-round pick. I think he won the like, Dick Butkus Award or whatever it is for the best linebacker in college football last year. And you have to respect the game he had and the way he's developing. The Browns getting him, that was a really, really savvy shrewd draft pick now Chicago (sighs) Chicago 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 where do I start man um Bears rookie quarterback Justin Fields made his first ever NFL start and I I woke up excited and hopeful I wanted to watch something incredible and I I didn't care if the Bears won but I'm like hey I get to watch this young quarterback hopefully do something really cool and uh it was a disaster it was awful. Justin Fields was six for 20 passing, had 68 yards. And here's the really disappointing number, though, and I'll dive into it more in a moment. Justin Fields ran the ball three times for 12 yards during this football game. He was sacked nine times. Nine times is insane. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Are we? I can't believe what we saw. I was just like, this is, this is heartbreaking and painful to watch. And I worry for the guy because... This was probably the worst game of Justin Fields' entire life. He dominated high school. I probably had a game or two. Like, he was a backup at Georgia. That was really frustrating. But at Ohio State, never skipped a beat. He was incredible. And it's also really not Justin Fields' fault he had a bad game. Basically, everything the dude tried failed. And I just – I felt like Justin Fields ran into a brick wall against Chicago. I felt bad for him. I worry for him. I, I saw David Carr. I've watched David Carr film against Houston. That's before my time. I was barely even, I was like five years old when David Carr played, but I've gone back and watched that film and he had no chance. The offensive line was horrible. That's what it felt like. And David Carr's career was ruined by getting sacked a ton. And it probably won't happen again to this level, but my goodness, it was very, very concerning. If you're a Bears fan, I'm not a Bears fan, but I like Justin Fields. I want him to do well. And I've been rooting the whole time. Like, please can Chicago find the franchise quarterback they've been looking for for years. And Geez, um, the Cleveland game was awful. And I was disappointed, too, that here's the other thing I, I thought it would come back to. I was hoping that and, and really believed that Justin Fields would be able to escape the pass rush. I was like, well, he'll make a couple plays and he'd make a guy miss and run around. Now, there are a couple things I have to say here. First of all, Justin Fields is not as fast as Kyler Murray or Lamar Jackson. Like, he just doesn't have the speed to get to the outside that Kyler or Lamar has. We just, let's acknowledge that first of all. So yes, he's not as fast. However, that was not the problem against Chicago. I I expected Justin to be able to make one guy miss in the backfield, escape a sack and run around. The problem was it was never just one guy. It was like two, three, four people in his face, immediately snapped the ball, guys, pressure in his face. And 
it was constant. The pressure was unrelenting. Uh, I have ants at my house. They, they always are near our sink. And it was like, no matter what you do, no matter how much cleaning you do, no matter how much you get rid of the crumbs, the ants are always there. They're just relentless. That is exactly what the pass rush was like for Cleveland. If you ever have had an ant problem and you're like, I can't get rid of these ants no matter what I do, the same feeling of discipline, like no matter what you do, you always try to deal with it. And then you look at every morning, you're like, they're back. I can't get rid of them. That was how it felt to watch the Bears try to block the, the, the Browns' defensive line. No matter what they did, no matter how many times you had hope, every like a new play, hey, maybe it'll be different this time. No, it was never different. They never could solve it. And I want to acknowledge something really quick. Um, first of all, I, I am not going to be the person who will defend Matt Nagy. I did not like the play calling I saw. Uh, Bears coach Matt Nagy called zone read a couple of times. I thought there were a couple times where he tried to move the pocket with a sprint out or, you know, a bootleg. But he did it like a time or two and then didn't come back to it. And I was really frustrated. Like, dude, you got to get Justin Fields moving outside of the pocket and you have to call it. And it felt like Matt Nagy was kind of waiting and hoping for Justin Fields to make a big crazy play, make someone miss in the backfield and run around. And rather than putting him in a position to do it, Matt Nagy just waited, hoping it would happen. That is not a good way to coach. You have to put people in a position to be successful. You can't just cross your fingers, call a bad play, and then hope they're going to do something explosive. Like, that's not how you coach. So I felt like Matt Nagy could have done better. And I have in the past defended him. Um, and I, this is the closest I will get to defending Matt Nagy. I will say this. No offense can work with a bad offensive line. Like, I don't care what play call you make. If the Bears offensive line plays the way they played against Chicago, uh, against Cleveland, it's hopeless. Like, I don't, I wonder how would Sean McVay have done? Sean McVay is the head coach of the LA Rams. If you gave Sean McVay the Bears team we saw against Cleveland, that mismatch, that bad offensive line, a rookie quarterback in his first ever start. I don't think Matt Nagy did good, but my question is, how well do you think a, a really creative, smart coach like Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan would have done? First of all, they would have had way more motions, although the question is, can, can, you know, is the Bears' offense even disciplined enough to run motion and not screw it up? And can your rookie quarterback, because it's, it's hard to, you call a play where you're like, I don't, I don't know if people realize this, you call a play and you have to, in your head, be able to imagine the motion where he's going to go and what your read is before the guy's ever there. It's so like in a two-by-two two set, you're like, okay, my guy's going to do this, and you can see it before the play happens. But if you're in a, a one-by-three set that's going to motion into two-by-two, two, you have to be able, able to imagine where everybody's going to be before they get there because the motion's going to come. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but emotion does really complicate a young quarterback's reads, and maybe that was the fear. Is, and I, I just, I don't know. It's crazy to me. So I, anyway, I keep seeing people say, fire Matt Nagy. And fine, fire the coach, like whatever you want. I'm not going to defend Matt Nagy. I refuse to at this point. But I do wonder, why am I not seeing people say, fire the GM Ryan Pace? Like, where is that sentiment? Why, why is that not trending on Twitter? Why is hashtag fire Ryan Pace not everywhere? Because Bears fans want someone to blame. Who's going to burn at the stake for this loss? Bears fans woke up on Sunday excited and hopeful, really wanted to watch a fun performance. Maybe they're going to lose, but hey, we get to watch a young quarterback do something fun. And then your joy got crushed. He got sacked nine times. He threw the ball like twice in the first half. And somebody has to pay. I get it. Now, the, the whole, he threw the ball how many times in the first half? Remember, a lot of the time, pass plays were called. He just was getting sacked and no chance to actually get rid of the football. So 
the whole thing, like he'd only threw the ball this amount of times. Well, they called more than two pass plays in the first half. He just kept getting hit before he could even get rid of the ball. But again, someone has to pay the price. I totally get it. But why is nobody targeting the general manager, Ryan Pace? Fire the coach. Okay. What about the GM? Because the offensive line is horrible, like awful. Why don't you fire the guy who picked the players on the offensive line? Again, no offensive scheme works if your offensive linemen are terrible. <laughs> I don't care who's calling plays. If your offensive line can't block at all, you're never going to be successful. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you do. Call as many smart plays as you want. If the right guard gets blown up, it doesn't matter. And again, I'm not sure that Sean McVay would have done much better. And by the way, Andy Dalton at quarterback, he would have got clobbered too. Andy Dalton might have maybe thrown the ball away from the pocket and avoided a sack or two by just getting rid of the football, like throwing it in the dirt or something. I, there were a couple times I thought Justin Fields was hesitant and was afraid to do the wrong thing, so he just took a sack rather than getting rid of the ball, getting it out of his hands. But did you guys see Jason Peters trying to play left tackle against Cleveland? Jason Peters was awful. The left tackle for the Bears? <laughs> Do you see his cut block on, on like a, 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 like a three-step sh- from the shotgun passing play where Justin Fields takes a long drop? Jason Peters tries to cut block. And you're like, what's your, you cut block. Then what's your plan? You're on the ground. You can't actually do any pass pro if you're on the ground. I, was there a miscommunication? Did he think Justin Fields is going to catch and throw the ball immediately? Like, what's going on there? Jason Peters had a play where, for some reason, he didn't expect to be blocking Miles Garrett, who's the guy outside of him. Like, Miles Garrett's on your left, and Jason Peters, for some reason, was he on drugs? I don't know. He just doesn't even look at, he just, ball snapped, doesn't even look at Miles Garrett off to his left. He just focuses in. There's no one to his left to block Miles Garrett. He lets Miles Garrett get halfway past him and then gives like a half assed block trying to block. I'm like, what are you doing? Who tied? Jason Peters is a well respected NFL veteran. I, look, I don't know what he's doing here, but that was not the way. He was awful against Miles Garrett. And when you have your left tackle playing that badly, you can't do anything. Ask the Titans week one with, against Taylor LeJuan. You know, Taylor LeJuan was horrible week one against the Colts. Was it the Colts? Who did the Titans play week one? Whoever the Titans, Seattle maybe? Whoever, Taylor LeJuan was like really, really awful week one. Whoever the Titans played, I, I'm blanking on that, but I remember him being terrible. When your left tackle is a detriment to your football team, it doesn't matter what you do. So I, I will say, I predicted the Bears to have a really bad year. And Bears fans got all mad at me. They yelled. They screamed. They got angry. <sighs> I just wonder, like, do you not see now? Like, Bears fans, do you see what I saw before the year started? This is why during my prediction for the Bears, I said, hey, you got to fire Ryan Pace, the general manager. I, I said it from week one. Before week one started, I said, hey, you're going to blame the coach. How about blame the guy who built the football team that has a terrible roster? I, I worry the Bears are going to lose to Detroit next week. Detroit isn't terrible. They can, I mean, they, they make a couple plays. Jared Goff played a really clean game this week. They probably should have beat the Ravens other than a miracle the Ravens pulled off. The one thing I hope is that next week, I really hope that the Lions defensive line is not as dominant as Cleveland was. There's no way they will be. So I hope Justin Fields gets a little more time to throw. He's more comfortable. Again, he looked hesitant against Cleveland. I thought the pressure got into his head. And I, I get when you have pressure, you snap the ball, you have a guy in your face immediately. Like I, that totally makes sense that that would get into. I mean, it's happened to me before where you don't trust the people around you. When you don't trust your offensive line, 
it's really, really not a good way to play quarterback. Like that's a horrible situation to be in. So I, I said before this week happened, I believe the Bears would lose. I said, I think the Bears are going to lose this game. I said, if they lose this game, do not panic if you're a Bears fan. But Chicago didn't lose this football game. They got decimated. They gave up nine sacks. They only had 47 yards of total offense. And Bears fans, you guys are worried that your young quarterback is going to get ruined. So I, Chicago, I give you permission to panic. If I were you, I would be horrified at what I saw week three against Cleveland. And I would say, I am panicking about this year. I'm very worried we're going to have a horrible year. And we might even ruin our young quarterback, Justin Fields. All right, guys, uh, I was going to take a break. It's in my notes to take a break here. I think we're 37 minutes in. It's going very well. Uh, unbroken, haven't had a reason to cut the show yet, which is like, you know, I'm on, I feel really good tonight. I'm on a roll. I'm very comfortable. I'm telling you, this shirt, I'm, I don't want to wear it every week because it's dark. It's not very professional looking, but I, I just feel way better when I'm wearing this dumb blue navy shirt. Anyway, the LA Rams just beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 34 to 24. Really, in my mind, it was 34 to 17. Uh, LA won by three scores in my mind. What happened was Tampa scored with a minute 10 left to make it 34-24. So, like, really, I mean, it's a, kind of a, a last-ditch effort to try to make something look better. I'm sure Tampa's like, ah, well, we saved some face by scoring at the end. At least it wasn't a three-score game. And I really don't have a lot to say about Tampa. I think they need to clean up the penalties week one. I think they're getting better statistically. Like, the penalties week one, there was 11 for Tampa against Dallas. Week two against Atlanta. Tampa had nine penalties now. Only, only, you know, only in quotes, it's still a lot, seven penalties against LA in week three. Uh, the Buccaneers have to clean some things up. They're still a really good team. I would love to see a rematch between the Rams and Tampa later in the year, hopefully in the playoffs. I mean, that's the only way they would meet up later. An AFC or an NFC championship game with the Rams and Buccaneers would be a really, really fun, really, really interesting matchup. Now, Tampa, they have to get healthy in the secondary. They are banged up. It's really concerning. Uh, definitely that helped make the Rams look a lot better. But I, I want people to promise me one thing. Promise me this. If the Buccaneers do not win a Super Bowl this year, spare me the you know Tom Brady's washed up narrative. I don't want to have that conversation. It's just not true at all. It won't be true in January. Uh, there's a ton of great NFL teams this year. Buffalo, the Rams. Um, I mean, I can't even. Kansas City, the Chargers, Cleveland, Green Bay. Uh there's so many, I mean, it's, the list goes on and on. And I feel like the NFL, yeah, the Buccaneers kept all their starters. I think they got slightly better, but oh, look, the rest of the NFL got better too. They're catching up to Tampa Bay. And so Tampa may not win at all this year. That will not mean that Tom Brady's washed up somehow suddenly because they didn't win a Super Bowl this year. Like the bar is crazy high for Tom Brady. And I feel like if they don't meet that crazy high expectation, People are going to say, well, he's, he's 40, whatever, and he's washed up. Like, can we not have that conversation? I don't want anyone to ever doubt Tom Brady again. People will. I'll get annoyed. Like, I see that whole narrative coming, right? But I just want to say, like, <laughs> Tom Brady's playing great football. If they don't win a Super Bowl this year, don't bail on Tom and say he's terrible. Remember, Peyton Manning won a Super Bowl when he could barely play football in his final year. So just don't give up on Tom Brady if they don't win a Super Bowl this year. Now, to me, this game... Tampa Bay versus L.A. This game confirmed what I already believed about the L.A. Rams. They are a team that has a, a top-five defense. They upgraded at quarterback. They got Matthew Stafford. They have a great coach, Sean McVay. They score at will. 
the Rams are Super Bowl contenders. Like they look like a very, very good football team. They might be the best team in the entire NFL. It's they're in the conversation. And they might, by the way, win a Super Bowl in their home stadium this year, which would be, I mean, what if we got, this would really isolate the rest of America. But can you imagine if we got the LA Chargers against the LA Rams in the Super Bowl this year, both in their home stadium? (laughs) Like, people already think the NFL is rigged. That would, like, make people believe, like, of course it's rigged. How could, like, that's, that narrative is too good. It sounds like a movie, but that would be, like, an incredible, weird very again, I don't think actually good for the NFL because it would really isolate everyone else not in LA and not on the West Coast. But I think that would be a very interesting Super Bowl. Now it's so much fun to watch Sean McVay and Matthew Stafford coach and quarterback. They're a great pair. Sean McVay is thirty five. Matthew Stafford is thirty three, and they've both given each other what they've always wanted. Matthew Stafford always was in Detroit, wanting to win, wanting a good coach, wanting to play with a good football team. Now he gets to do that. Matthew Stafford is completely fulfilled. And Sean McVay, there's no way for years he didn't feel held back by Matthew, uh, by Jared Goff. By Jared Goff, man, I, I think that Sean McVay felt like he always knew he was elevating Jared Goff, always wanted more from his quarterback, and now he gets that. Sean McVay and Matthew Stafford are just having the time of their lives. They are so happy. It's a dream come true for them. And again, I think the Rams might be the best team in the entire NFL. Now, again, in fairness to what we saw against Tampa, Tampa Bay does have a ton of injuries in their secondary. It does show how, you know, how weak the secondary is for Tampa. Uh, it helped make the Rams look really, really good. I mean, the Rams were doing everything they wanted, throwing the football. Sony Michelle had, like, I think 20 or 16 carries. For, I do know the number was, 20, uh, for, was 69, 67 yards. Sony Michelle had 67 yards on either 16 or 20 carries. Someone looked that up. I don't, the, the point is, I think Sony Michelle is going to be really very much what the Rams need when they need to run the football because uh, Sony Michelle is very capable and, and the, the scheme Sean McVay has elevates running backs. So Sony Michelle is a perfect fit for the Rams. And then they didn't even need to run the ball this game because Tampa couldn't stop them at all throwing the football. And consider this, by the way, that the Rams lost seven different assistant coaches during the offseason. And because of Sean McVay's success as a head coach, the Rams have been getting their coaches poached off their roster and off their, out of their organization for years. They lost Zach Taylor, head coach of the Bengals. Matt LaFleur went to be the offensive coordinator in Tennessee so he could call his own plays. Now he's a head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Brandon Staley just left to be the head coach of the LA Chargers. That's a, there might be more. I, I'm blanking. There might be more people, but that's at least three former Sean McVay assistant, head coach, assistant coaches who are now head coaches of other NFL teams. So Sean McVay... It reminds me of Nick Saban, the way that, same with Bill Belichick, right? When you are very successful, people you work with get hired away and have to find a way to make up for the fact you lost really good coaches around you. Sean McVay, to this point, has done that. It's very Nick Saban-esque, who every year seems to lose his offensive coordinator. The offensive coordinator leaves Alabama, goes to be a head coach somewhere else. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like, wow. If you want to be a head coach in college football, go be Nick Saban's offensive coordinator for a year or two. You'll get a job like that. Bill Belichick, every single assistant coach he has seems to go be a head coach. Other places they fail sometimes. Hey, uh, Flores looks pretty good in Miami. We'll see how he does there long term. But again, I just I want to point out how impressive it is about Sean McVay that he can lose this many coaches, have this much turnover on his coaching staff, and remain with a really good level of continuity winning every year. It's unbelievable to me 
the coaching job Sean McVay's done. And I want to give a shout-out to Cooper Cup. He had nine catches for 96 yards, two touchdowns, uh, had a really savvy out route. I love seeing this from Cooper Cup where he ran an out route, then he stuttered in, then he ran back out. It was like a, I've never seen a stutter out before. Uh, I texted my buddy Nathan Hawthorne. He played D1 receiver at Portland State. Uh, likely that's not in the play design to run a stutter out where you like fake in, out, then back out. Uh, it's just a dude being a, a good player and savvy and understanding the concept and making a play against one-on-one coverage. My guess is, and we hypothesize that probably that's something that, um, you know, Cooper Cup tried in practice in one-on-ones, and he, he's like, hey, Matt, Matt, I'm going to do that again. Like, he told the quarterback, hey, I'm going to do that later in the year, and if, if I get this matchup, I'm running that. And Matthew Stafford was ready for it. The timing was perfect. I've never – there's a crazy good angle of Cooper Cup. He runs out. He takes a step in. The defender bites hard on the in-cut, like thinks he's got a pick six. And then Cooper Cup crosses him and goes back outside, and you're like, oh, my goodness. That is a terrifying route. I've never seen that done before. And, uh, hey, credit to that. I really like seeing Cooper Cup do that. Also, I cannot believe how fast Deshaun Jackson still is. He's 34 years old. He can still run by anybody in the NFL. It's unbelievable. And I know that Sean McVay used to coach him in Washington. But uh, Deshaun Jackson had a long 75-yard touchdown catch. And he should have really had three long touchdowns. In the first half, two long balls were missed to Deshaun Jackson. Uh, my, my theory here is that Matthew Stafford is still learning how to play with Deshaun Jackson. I, I think he's learning and realizing, oh, no matter what I do, I cannot overthrow D-Jack. Like, you cannot throw the ball too far. If you see Deshaun Jackson running vertical, launch it as far as you can, as high as you can. He will run under it. It's unbelievable. And so opportunity number one, Stafford underthrew it. I think it's a moment of he's still learning. Oh, I really can just put it as far as humanly possible. He's 34, but he's got burners. And then opportunity number two, Matthew Stafford got hit as he threw. He couldn't get enough on it. And, and I know that after the first underthrow, I'm sure Deshaun Jackson said, hey, dude, it's me. Like, you can throw that thing as far as you possibly can. I'll run under it. So then after the second one, when Deshaun Jackson looks back, the ball lands behind him. It's another, for his perspective, that's another underthrow. That's when Matthew Stafford, I'm sure, went to go tell him, hey, I, I got hit as I threw. I, we're on the same page. I know what I got to do. I just got hit as I threw. I couldn't get enough on it. And the reason why you tell Deshaun Jackson that after the second vertical, where Deshaun Jackson's open, but the ball is underthrown a second time, you have to tell him, hey, I don't want you to lose faith. I know what I got to do. I just couldn't get enough on it that time because it got hit as I threw. My arm got hit. And then on try number three, bam, 75 yards vertical, like an amazing touchdown. And I think we're going to see more of that as the year goes on, it's just so cool to see Matthew Stafford playing in a big game like this, where this is probably one of the most, if not the most high profile regular season games Matthew Stafford has played in since his college days. I mean, I, I would not be shocked. Matthew Stafford played quarterback at Georgia in the SEC. There's got there has to have been a game or two against, you know, uh, they played Florida. I'm sure in that, in that year or two when he was playing at Georgia, because they, they played Florida and Georgia play every year, both SEC teams. I have no doubt that was a really high-profile regular season game. In all the years he was in Detroit, I mean, I, I even think there might have been more people watching with the Buccaneers-Lions, or Buccaneers-Rams regular season game might have had more viewers than a Detroit Lions playoff game ever had. And, and Matthew Stafford has the most yards and touch. He's got the best stats ever for a quarterback. He's never won a playoff game. And I just love seeing the guy 
getting an opportunity to play in really big moments and doing well and winning. Like, I just think Matthew Stafford has waited his whole career for moments like he had on Sunday. I love seeing it happen. I love seeing him do well. And uh, I'm so, so happy for Matthew Stafford. Okay, um, let me drink some water real quick. Final topic of the day. 48 minutes in, unbroken, perfect. I'm doing well. I, look, I feel really good. There's a fan in the background. I hope it can't be heard. I will be heartbroken if there's a fan you can hear in the background. However, my theory is that the fan, it's, there's a door and a curtain between me and the fan. And I think the fan on the lanai is going to block out a lot of the sound coming from my voice out of my apartment. That way people below me and next to me can't hear me. That's my theory. I'm praying that's how that works. Okay. I already covered three games from NFL Week 3. I talked about the Rams versus Tampa and another topic. Uh, Sunday Night Football, Packers at 49ers. I talked about that. Bears, Browns, uh, Justin Fields, first ever NFL start. I already talked about those three games. You can find those topics elsewhere. However, there are still nine noteworthy stories I want to talk about from NFL Week 3. Number one is this. The Ravens beat the Lions with a crazy Game-winning field goal, a new NFL record, 66 yards from Justin Tucker. It bounced off the crossbar. It went in, was good. Uh, And to get there, what's even more unbelievable about this kick, (laughs) it's unbelievable. The Ravens had to convert a fourth and 19 on their own 16-yard line, and they did. It's, I just, it was insane, and I felt really bad for Lions fans. I felt bad because, first of all, their quarterback, Jared Goff, Played a pretty clean game, 22 for 30 passing, no turnovers. Uh, And also, like, the Lions, I mean, Ravens receiver Marquise Brown, I'm not even going to call him Hollywood because he doesn't deserve it. Marquise Brown dropped two touchdowns back-to-back. And the whole, you know, all those people, the Lamar can't throw crowd. How about the Hollywood doesn't deserve the Hollywood part of his name crowd? I just, I don't know. I'm tired of people saying Lamar can't throw. We saw he could this weekend. I just, I can't say enough. I felt so bad. For Lions fans, they finally thought they won a football game. And then they give up a 4th and 19 deep in their own territory, right? Like, they, they had the Ravens dead to rights, and they couldn't make it happen. So not only did they give up a 4th and 19 deep in Ravens territory, then they get beat by the longest field goal in NFL history, which bounces off the crossbar. I'm like, oh, you poor people in Detroit. I feel so bad for you. Number two, the Raiders beat Miami in overtime. The Raiders are now 2-0. I have not watched this game yet. Remember, Tua Tungvaloa, the quarterback for Miami, is on the injured reserve. He's out at least three games. He's got two more games he will not play, minimum. And Jacoby Brissett has got now two more games to create a quarterback controversy in Miami. Jacoby Brissett, I want to watch you. I don't know how well he played, but I know that they took the Raiders to overtime. Derek Carr had a pick six, and I just, whatever happened here, Jacoby Brissett was clearly not terrible. He did enough to put his team in a position where they had an opportunity to win. And, and then the other note here is just the Raiders are 3-0. and They play, gosh, they play, uh, I think the L.A. Chargers next week. I, I don't know that the Raiders can beat L.A., but they could. I, I guess they they'd always could. I don't know that they will, but the Raiders are 3-0. and They might go 4-0 and if they win a really tough game next week. And remember, the Raiders are coming off of the... The L.A. Chargers are coming off of a really high. They beat Kansas City on the road. So maybe coming off of a really big win, the Chargers are a little bit flat next week. The Raiders can take advantage and win next week. Maybe the Raiders start 4-0 here. I mean, that's a really cool year. And I just, I believe it's the best start to a year ever. Uh, not ever. It's the best uh, start to a season for the Raiders since 2002, the year they won the Super Bowl. So I, I just, man, I am very, very 
very excited for Raiders fans. They have been waiting for a year like this for a long time, and I don't know if it's going to continue. But you're 3-0. and Enjoy it. Be happy. Right now, Derek Carr is an MVP candidate. Like, have a good time. Be happy. Do MVP chance in week four. Like, I just have a really good time. Enjoy being undefeated right now. That's very, very cool for the Raiders. Number three, Josh Allen. He had a slowish start to the first two games. He did not play great week one. Did not. He played a little better week two against Miami. Uh, still, like, I mean, <laughs> Miami did not play well last week. Against the Steelers, they lost. Week two, they beat Miami. But not an amazing performance for Josh Allen. Josh Allen exploded, though, in week three against Washington. This is the guy we saw last year, all year. He had five total touchdowns, four passing, one rushing. He was 32 for 43, uh, passing with 358 yards. Again, that's the Josh Allen we saw last year, a guy who was an MVP candidate last year. And when the Bills offense plays like they did week three against Washington, they can beat anybody. And I am very hopeful and excited for the rest of the year for Buffalo. Can they keep it going? I think they can. I want to see this team become a Super Bowl contender. They already are in the mix, but can they beat a? Can they win a playoff game against Kansas City in the AFC title game? That, can they be that team? They're really good. Can they get over the hump this year? That's what I want to see from Buffalo. And man, if Josh Allen plays like that the rest of the year, they definitely can. Now, number four, the Saints beat the Patriots twenty-eight to thirteen. Everybody gave up on New Orleans after they lost last week. And by the way, Mac Jones, rookie quarterback, had three interceptions against New Orleans. The Saints' defense looks really, really good. But last week, the Saints' coaching staff like was basically, they had like seven offensive coaches out with COVID, a couple defensive coaches. Basically, half their coaching staff did not coach last week. And that's not just during the game. That's like all week they couldn't be around the players. And so I think people really strongly overreacted to New Orleans losing week two to Carolina badly. I remember saying during, I think last week there was eight stories. So last week during Noteworthy 8, I said, hey, remember, the Saints didn't have a lot of their coaching staff. Well, we saw, hey, the Saints are not the team that got destroyed week two by Carolina. They're still a very good football team. They beat the Patriots this week. Um, I think they're still finding their way. The, Patri- or the, the Saints offense is still figuring things out. But Jameis looked a lot better this week. And I, I, again, I want to repeat, like, the interceptions Jameis threw in week two against Carolina came once they were down 17 to nothing. One was at the end of the fourth quarter. One was the end of the first half, but he didn't create the massive lead for Carolina. He was trying to overcome that. That's when he threw the bad interceptions in week two. So I just wouldn't close the door on Jameis Winston yet. He looks, I haven't watched this game yet. I want to watch a game, but they beat the Patriots. That means something. And the Patriots have a good defense. And so I just don't close your mind yet on Jameis Winston being a good quarterback. It's still up in the air. And I'll watch this game. I'll give you a report when I watch it. But um, in, interesting and exciting stuff coming out of that Patriots-New Orleans game. And number five, <sighs> Giants fans, man. The Giants are 0-3. Uh, they just lost to Atlanta 17-14. to Hey, uh, angry Giants fans, let's have a talk real quick. You guys did not like my season prediction for the New York Giants. And, uh, hey, I will accept apologies at any time. Anytime. I'm wondering if Dave Gettleman's going to keep his job after this year. Uh, the, the one guy I was completely right about. Daniel Jones is showing promise. I don't know how he played in week two, but it looked like he didn't have any turnovers. wasn't awful. But Saquon Barkley, one touchdown in three games, 134 yards rushing in three games total. 
go watch my prediction. I was right about Saquon Barkley. Like, they could have got that kind of production way later than the second overall pick. I mean, they, they just should not have drafted Saquon Barkley number two overall. And I will say that until I'm dead. That was a bad—not because Saquon's bad, but because Saquon, without a good offensive line, can't do anything, right? Like, I don't care how good your running back is. I'll say this forever. I don't care how good and talented your running back is, how explosive he is, how great he is in the open field. He can't get to the open field if he has a bad offensive line, and the Giants do. They never should have drafted Saquon Barkley number two overall. And not because, again, not because Saquon's bad, but because you should never draft a running back that high. If you're that bad, you clearly have bigger problems than a running back. And so I just, I totally disagree on the way the Giants were built. I want to do a topic called redrafting the New York Giants. I've got a really, I've done all the prep work for it. I'm kind of waiting for a good opportunity to release that. I might put it out this week. Let me know if you want to hear that. That would be a really fun topic, redrafting the New York Giants. Number six is this, the Chargers beat Kansas City. Game was at Kansas City too, by the way. Uh, The Chargers are a Super Bowl dark horse, in my opinion. I had the LA Chargers winning the AFC West. I got called crazy for that. I'm feeling pretty good about it right now. We're only three games in, but I'm like, hey, uh, LA is very, very good. And they just beat Kansas City. At Kansas City. I mean, I had had Kansas City down slightly from last year. Not not awful. Still a playoff team. And and if Kansas City gets into the playoffs, they have an opportunity to win a Super Bowl every year because they have Patrick Mahomes. But I have them as a wildcard team, not winning their division because of how good the LA Chargers is. So far, that that journey for LA to beat Kansas City and win the division has begun. And we'll see how it plays out. I'll see if my prediction was right. And I don't have an ego here. I don't care if I'm wrong. I'm willing to be wrong. But I'm feeling pretty good about that right now. This is only the third time in the Patrick Mahomes era that Kansas City has lost two games in a row. It's really surprising to me. And so, um, you know, they lost to the Ravens last week. They lost to the Chargers now. Wow. Very impressive win by L.A. Number seven, the Colts are 0-3. They lost to the Titans 25-16. Carson Wentz played, but it wasn't enough, unfortunately. In my opinion, a Super Bowl is unrealistic if you're Indianapolis right now. Uh, And I think it was always unrealistic to expect a Super Bowl run in year one of Carson Wentz's career in Indianapolis. Um, I think they need a few more players anyway to build a team that can win a Super Bowl. And I think if you're a Colts fan, it's okay. Like, relax. You're fine. Your window hasn't closed. Nothing like that. I think actually you're entering a Super Bowl window next year, right? Give it a year for Carson Wentz. If you let go of the Super Bowl... And you adjust your expectations accordingly to like, hey, this year is about building and getting chemistry and getting Carson Wentz used to Indianapolis and playing with his teammates and building chemistry with his receivers. Like, it was never quite realistic for Carson Wentz to win a Super Bowl in year one. And this year's about building for next year to make a long run next year. So if I'm a Colts fan, that's how I would orient my brain. It would give me comfort. It would make me feel better. Let go of the Super Bowl aspirations change that to next year, and then, hey, you're all good. You're 0-3, but it's not hopeless. This year is about growing and building chemistry between Carson Wentz and the rest of his teammates. Number eight. (sighs) Look, Bengals fans hate me, and I don't mind it. It's fine. Uh, But the Bengals just beat Pittsburgh 24-10. I had a fantastic time watching and keeping up with this game. It was really cool to see. I, you know... (laughs) Pittsburgh is dominated for years. And to see Cincinnati, they, they beat them last year too without Joe Burrow. But to do it this year with Joe Burrow, 
Jamar Chase had two touchdowns. The Bengals are two and one. I mean, I am starting to buy into the fact and believe that Joe Burrow might be turning around Cincinnati. Joe Burrow is the man. He wins and makes it happen everywhere he goes. And oh, I, look, I, I love Cincinnati. People think I hate on Cincinnati. I don't like their ownership. Although I like the moves they made this offseason. And I, it's looking like I was not only wrong about Cincinnati and Joe Burrow, but I'm, there's an opportunity here. We'll see. We're three games in. We'll see where we're at week 10. But I might have been very wrong about Cincinnati. And I just, I'm starting to feel a sense of hope. And when I get hopeful, I become a fan, and I want, I want Jill Burrow to do incredible. I love the city of Cincinnati. I met a guy here in Hawaii the other day who's from Cincinnati, who moved here from Cincinnati, and he misses home. And we talked about Skyline Chili, and I just was like, ah, like how cool would it be if the Bengals made it work with Jill Burrow and won a lot and were very, very good and competitive? I would love to see that. So uh, I'm holding on to hope. My fingers are crossed. Maybe Jill Burrow is the right guy who is capable of turning this Bengals team around and this franchise around, and that would make me – Unbelievably happy. Number nine. Noteworthy nine. Hey, um, Minnesota beat Seattle. And Minnesota, the Vikings, to their credit, they avoided being 0-3. Well done for them. Both Seattle and Minnesota are now 1-2. I think Seattle at 1-2 is way worse off than Minnesota at 1-2. Minnesota might have saved their season. Seattle right now... They're in a bad spot. They're one and two. They are at the bottom of the NFC West, a really good, really competitive division. I mean, it's only going to get worse here for Seattle. They play, they're in the same division as the Rams, the Cardinals, and the 49ers, who are incredibly good. I had the Seahawks as the worst team in that division. And I got nervous about my prediction. I was like, ah, we'll see. And we're only three games in. But I, I said, hey, I will back off my prediction of six and 11 for Seattle. Week 10. If week 10, they're better than I thought, hey, I will, I will admit I was wrong and own it. But I said, let's, let's see where they're at. Because I remember last year, I, I had the Jaguars tanking and winning like one game last year. And they, they beat the Colts week one, and I panicked. I was like, oh, no, I'm wrong. And I, I said, I was wrong about the Jaguars. And it turns out, fool's gold. I was right all along. So I, I've been very careful not to back off of my Seattle Seahawks prediction just yet. I hear the anger. I feel it. That's fine. But... Uh, Seattle's in a bad spot that's only going to get worse, and they didn't even score in the second half against Minnesota. Like I said, the question this year was, how far can Russell Wilson carry them? I think the team around him isn't very good. We can disagree on that, but Russell Wilson has to put the team on his back and carry them up a mountain, like a Sherpa. You ever, you ever heard of mountain climbing at Mount Everest? They carry your gear for you. It's kind of weird, and I, it's a relationship I don't understand, but Russell Wilson's got to be the guy to pick up the slack and carry everything while you climb up the mountain. Can Russell Wilson carry all your gear and get up the mountain? I don't, I don't know. When, when Russell Wilson won a Super Bowl, he had a great, incredible team around him. They, they had the luxury of having Percy Harvin like, do nothing all year and then score a bunch in the Super Bowl. I mean, they just didn't even – they had players they didn't even need on that team. Seattle is not that team right now. They are the worst, in my opinion, worst team – Seattle's ever put around Russell Wilson, and we can disagree on that, but I, I see a really rough year ahead for Seattle, and I'm not backing down from that. We'll see where they are week 10, uh, but get mad at me all you want. I'm concerned for Seattle. The Vikings, however, won a must-win game. Good for them. Uh, I am curious how the rest of the year goes for Minnesota. I might have said Miami. I meant Minnesota. Minnesota, if they can salvage their year one and two right now, if they can have a winning record, then maybe they don't fire the coach. I think the coach, Mike Zimmer, or the quarterback, 
Kirk Cousins. One of them gots to go. One of them is going to take the fall here if they have a bad year. Maybe both of them. I am very, very interested to keep my eye on Minnesota. What's going to happen this year? I, I don't know. I have no idea. And I, it's a developing story that I cannot wait to see play out. All right, guys. My name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much. It is 1.48 in the morning here in Hawaii. I love you. I appreciate you. Uh, so far, no knocks on the door. No angry neighbors. They might be listening. Hey, neighbors, love you. Thanks for letting me do this very late at night. Um, I wanted to get this out early morning on the East Coast. I love you. I appreciate you. But I'm bum. Bam. We are done.